here. It is Friday, January the 13th, here in Coogee, Sydney, Australia, 4.38pm. I've been listening to a BBC4 podcast series by Helen Lewis, The, the New Gurus. And she asked, like, why do, why do people do it? Like, why do people make podcasts? And I think part of the reason is you see someone else do it and you think, oh, I can do that and I can do it better. Like I read the, the pundits in the newspaper or I listen to them on TV or I might hear them on, on YouTube and I have to think, oh, I've got something sharper, wiser, smarter. What do I think of Dominique Perrottet dressing up as a Nazi? <laughs> Look, I think we've all done it, right? I mean, isn't just a phase that you go through. Uh, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise it. But uh, hey, we all have nasty sides of ourselves that we just need to find the right situation to express it. All right. So, generally speaking, most situations, dressing up as a Nazi, not, not appropriate, not a good look. But you know, there are probably some situations. You know, where it absolutely rocks and it, and it adds a whole new layer of intensity and, and joy and uh, excitement to whatever it is that you, you've got going on. So, listening to Helen Lewis, she's talking about the birth of the new guru. Not only are gurus now available to anyone, now anyone can be a guru. And that's what gets us to Russell Brand. Spain. Can anyone really be a guru? I would think that you would need high verbal IQ and I think it would help to have charisma, which means that you bring energy to people's lives, right? People like feel better. They get an energy bump when they interact with you. So there's a discussion here with Jordan Hall. He used to be a big Jordan Peterson fan. <laughs> he met a 17 year old girl who was a life coach. Oh yeah, I'm sure that there are very savvy 17 year olds who can, you know, impart something valuable to some people. Like, sure. But, uh, so Jordan Hall was very impressed by Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson became his guru, and then Jordan Hall became disenchanted with, with Jordan Peterson, and apparently all these people told him, well, you can't, you can't get public with that because you'd be betraying this, your, your mentor. And that's, that's all the reactions I got. So I started listening to Dennis Prager on KBC Radio in the fall of 1988, and my you know, virtual parasocial relationship with him was that I would call his radio show, and I'd argue with him, and then I started corresponding with him, and uh, we, we eventually had a few phone calls and met in person, but I always had this kind of confrontational, combative relationship with, with Dennis Prager, and uh, a lot of people thought, oh, you know, if he inspires you to convert to Judaism, uh, you know, if he changed your life, as you say, then you, you can't be combative anymore. Now you have to be a dutiful follower. And uh, yeah, I n never went for that. But uh, nobody else understood that. Everyone else understood that just as sheer betrayal. But you know, I appreciated the kindness that Dennis Prager showed me. I appreciated some of the perspectives on life that I, I learned from Dennis Prager. Then I wanted to move on. And uh, a lot of people don't want you to move on in life, right? Because we only have so much processing power, so we just kind of want to put people in boxes, like family members, relatives, friends, acquaintances, like we want to put them in a box, and the idea that they just like radically move on, you know, in ways that we're not conceiving, that's uh, upsetting to people. So they'll call it betrayal, right? Betrayal is the hyperbolic term that we use when people have choices, make choices, make decisions, go in directions, that we weren't expecting, right? So, oh, now my friend would rather you know, go kickboxing on Friday night than, than hang out with me. I feel betrayed because you know last Friday night, you know I for I forwent what I wanted to do so that I could hang out with him. Right? Your friend has behavior and and different priorities than what you expected, and so you experience that as betrayal. But Betrayal is simply a hyperbolic, hyper-emotional term that we give to other people making decisions that we don't expect and don't like. Speculating about Ukraine, COVID, and a new world order, in between yoga sessions in the home counties. There are hundreds, thousands of online preachers fulfilling the role that might once have been held by a traditional religious authority. Are we then an increasingly secular society? I 
really uh, are online gurus fulfilling you know the, the role that used to be held by religious preachers i think it's uh, people sharing experiences and opinions and uh, say demystifying parts of life like i know some things that you don't know you know some things that i don't know now we have a forum where we can talk to each other and i assume we all share a kind of a similar similar you know bent uh, you know, we're all right-wing, I believe. I heard a great take on Andrew Tate today. Okay, so I've never been able to summon much interest in Andrew Tate. I just find him gross. But I'm down with hearing your, your take on Andrew Tate. So I'm currently exiled from my from my unit, from my apartment here. So I'm hanging out at the beach in uh, Kuji. I've just been on walkabout for the past five hours in my thongs. Uh, I think it's the first time I've ever walked like 12 miles in thongs. And it wasn't so bad. I went down on the ocean. I was clambering over rocks. And, uh, you know, thongs were actually better than my skeechers, which are, you know, just falling off very easily. Yeah, Andrew Tate's a degenerate. I don't think we are. Um, I think it's become popular to imagine that because more people, uh, particularly younger people... Yeah, and I think that's a stupid perspective. The word religion has a meaning. It has various meanings. But uh, some bloke, skeechers, yeah... Uh, some bloke just uh, opining on YouTube is not fulfilling you know, your religious needs. This is, this is not a religion, what we've got going on here. It's a community of blokes. All right. So, yeah, we are objectively, definitively, an increasingly less religious society, no matter what this uh, academic has to say say um, that they're religiously unaffiliated. That means that they uh, don't believe in God or don't believe in anything. This is Tara Isabella Burton, author of a book called Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World. What's actually happening is that the way that people, particularly younger people, are thinking about religion. Yeah, we are definitively less religious. And uh, what an amazing sight here. At the, uh, the Kuji, Kuji Beach. Right? If people don't participate in an organized religion or in a disorganized religion, all right, we are definitively less religious. All right. Words have, have meaning, the, the meanings change, there could be multiple meanings, but the idea that uh, we're not becoming less religious is just bogus. Religion is changing, is becoming less institutional, less about organized religion, and more about what you might call the spiritual but not religious. You have this great phrase about remixed religion. What is that? Remixed religion is the idea that. Okay, so she just said we're not becoming less religious, we're becoming spiritual, not religious. Okay, spiritual is not religious. Okay, so religion has requirements, right? There are, there are rules, there's organization, right? And uh, spirituality is something you can do on your own, and no one can tell you that you're wrong, right? So... Once one understanding of the difference, like spirituality is for people who want the benefits of organized religion without paying the price. That's only one approach. Uh, there, there are other approaches that are much more um, understanding or positive of, of spirituality, but there are definitively differences. So here this academic expert says, oh, we're not any less religious. Oh, we're less religious, but we're more spiritual. Words have meaning, ladies. Increasingly, people want to kind of mix and match elements of belief systems or practices or rituals, depending on what works for them. A kind of curated, bespoke religion of one. So this is the kind of a la carte version of religion, where you pick bits and pieces from Buddhism, perhaps, or from some of the newer wellness kind of things and mash it all together. Absolutely. What are these new religions of the internet that you're interested in? Name a few for me. Sure. Yeah, there's something to that, but it's always been that way. Guess what? People have always mixed and matched in the sense people have always taken on some responsibilities and some sacrifices in, in the name of their religion or culture or community and try to get away with other things. Chat says, I think one-third of Gen Zs or atheists depend on the country. Traditional religion is incompatible with the dominant liberal egalitarian religion of Westerners. Yeah, so liberalism has undercut yeah, many of the, the truth claims of religion. And so in the United States, for example, uh, the religion of niceness, so to speak, using very expanded use of the term uh, religion, all right, uh, has kind of superseded the individual truth claims of organized religion. So being an American uh, means that uh, you, you're, you're nice about all religions, and that's you know much more important than the exclusive claims of any one religion. So yeah, a lot of uh, 
young people, they don't like the exclusive claims of Christianity, and I'm sure if they got to know Judaism and Islam, they would not like the exclusive claims found there. I'm interested in various cults of fandom, wellness culture, modern occultism, the kind of neo-paganism and witchcraft particularly popular with younger progressive women libertarians who believe that... The idea that one religion is true and others are false, yeah, that's kind of like anti-American to, to believe that because uh, it, it's not very nice. Now, what she's describing as cults, all right, all in-group identities are culty. Uh, you can't have an in-group identity without taking on the characteristics of cults. Technology will save us all. The atavists, the people on the reactionary right, fascinated with an idea of a return to a time where men were men and women were women. Communities involved in kink or polyamory, reimagining what it is to be with one another romantically and sexually. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. Uh, that's uh, Steve Jobs, all right? He's, uh, he's being cast here as the, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate uh, guru. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. So I'm interested in your take on how important a figure like Steve Jobs and the kind of tech utopianism he represents was in bringing around these new ideologies. Hugely, hugely important. So I think that just as uh, people will say that the, the Protestant Reformation of the printing press went hand in hand, so too did this birth of the new internet culture really give rise to this new religious landscape because we're so used to now engaging in these kind of disembodied digital landscapes that are correspond to our desires. And Steve Jobs in particular is, I think, one of the major ideological forerunners of the shift, which really arise out of this sort of 1960s American where else could we have these kind of you know, discussions outside of the disembodied space of the internet right? we, we like to talk about things on this show that you're not allowed to talk about in, in polite society so as long as society is oppressing us censoring us right? denying us our, our free speech you know, wanting to persecute us for entertaining various heretical ideas yeah, we'll have to find niche places on, on the internet where we can gather, have a good chinwag. American counterculture with an obsession with being who you really are. And I think if you look at sort of the process of uh, the technological revolution that we're all in, it's a process of taking very centralized things and making them very democratic, if you will, very individualized. Do you think this is a golden age of gurus? I absolutely do. I think the internet has become this uh, spiritual marketplace where everybody is trying to sell some sort of spiritual fulfillment. And that brings me back to Russell Brand. Because, you see... Oh, so on the internet, people are trying to sell something, unlike in real life. Like, in real life, we're trying to sell things, too. We're trying to sell ourselves, we're trying to sell a particular picture of ourselves, we're trying to you know, sell, you know, our favorite team, our favorite song, right? The internet here is just an extension of real life. I was there when Russell the Guru was born. Although I didn't realize it at the time. What was it like working with Russell Brand? Everything you'd imagine and more. I think I could probably <laughs> say that. Example. So he came into our editorial conference and just delivered this sort of flawless monologue that had us kind of all sitting there going, oh, okay, that's really interesting. That was a simpler time. Well, 2013, when Brand guest edited the magazine I worked for, The New Statesman. He wrote... Okay. I'm uh, operating this a little fast. Right, let me slow this down. Saying, saying there was no point in voting. And he went on television to tell Jeremy Paxman the same thing. I'm merely pointing out that the You're current... calling for revolution. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm calling for change. I'm calling for genuine alternatives. I say when there is a genuine alternative... A... So an actor and a comic and an ex-drug addict is uh, calling for a revolution and people not voting. All right, I don't think that's exactly going to shake the foundations of uh, British democracy. Genuine option, then vote for that. Until then, don't bother. That interview was like an explosion. He was saying something taboo and exciting, or naive and dangerous. To... Like, who would consider that explosive, uh, taboo, uh, exciting, uh, dangerous? I mean, that's insane. This guy's an actor, a comic, a recovering addict, a massive drug abuser. Like, why would you be thrown that uh, you know this actor dude suggests that people don't vote? In your perspective, he saw himself as a revolutionary and saw that there was a huge audience for someone telling mainstream politicians and mainstream journalists that they were out of touch. So yeah, an actor wants to play a role. Right? Sees himself as a revolutionary. Right? That, that's what actors do. Right? They're, they're very emotional, 
flighty people. It's gonna be a revolution, it's totally going to happen. I ain't got a flicker of doubt, this is the end. Gurus, by their nature, are outside the establishment. Today, I would be more cautious about praising Russell Brand's incredible verbal fluency. Not everyone uses that power for good. Now, when I watch... Okay, so she's talking again like uh, verbal fluency is this incredible power that uh, some people have over people. But the verbally fluent can never take you anywhere you don't want to go. Isn't that an eagle song? Is it a witchy woman or a peaceful, easy feeling? But anyway, the verbally fluent guru can never take you anywhere you don't want to go. So they're not nearly as dangerous as uh, Helen Lewis pretends. But she needs to read Not Born Yesterday, right? We did not evolve to be gullible. There's certain like basic points about life that just you know cut through the BS that is constantly you know flowing through mainstream media like this this series. Right? We obviously did not evolve to be gullible, right? Uh, the verbally fluent guru is never going to take you anywhere that you don't want to go. Uh, such basic, you know, common sense, evolutionary common sense, man. Uh, why isn't she up to date on this? Talking about vaccines and the new world order, or I hear that YouTube is restricted. Okay, so if Russell Brand talks about vaccines and the new world order, right, he's not going to shift anywhere and anywhere that they don't want to go. He's not going to convince people who believe in the efficacy of vaccines to not take the vaccine. Right? He's not going to convince people that who aren't, you know, already conspiratorially minded that there's, you know, this very dangerous new world order coming down the pike. Access to his videos. We have been officially censored by YouTube. They took down one of our videos for misinformation. But Okay, so one thing you can learn from Russell Brand, if you want to be a podcaster, want to be a successful live streamer, you got to have that enormous amount of energy. Dennis Prager talked about this when he started going on radio. The, the station manager, the program director, would just keep on him more energy, more energy, more energy. So if you're going to be good at doing this, right, you have to bring five to ten times the amount of energy that you would bring to an ordinary everyday conversation. And you got to have that rising pitch, right? He's keeping that pitch very high to, to compel your attention. So he's, he's a very good presenter. I think, hang on, did I fall under the spell of a guru? If so, I'm not the only one. In this series, we will meet all kinds of gurus. Some you will have heard of. Others will be incredibly famous to their followers, just not to you. Did you fall under the spell of a guru? You're only going to fall under the spell of a guru is taking you where you want to go. Right? Have you ever fallen under the spell of a charismatic bus driver? Right? Do you allow a bus driver who you like you know, to take you in a direction you don't want to go? No, you get off the bus. Like I'm in Sydney, I'm not you know, exactly familiar with you know, which routes should I take, and I'm looking at my phone, and if I ever see that I'm going in the wrong direction, I get off the bus at the next available stop. Stop, no matter how charismatic the bus man, and live streamers, pundits, gurus, exactly the same way. Anytime they start taking you in a direction you don't want to go, right, you're going to get off that bus. There's a guru for every area, every demographic, every modern worry. We'll hear from gurus predicting the future. We've had a good run, but unfortunately, this good run uh, has ended. Discover what happens when you put faith and money in a digital currency. There's a common term that people say in Bitcoin, came for the gains, stay for the revolution. But our journey will begin in the world of wellness as I explore how people are cleansing their bodies and their souls. How can I find a way that makes me feel the most juicy and excited to be alive? And for me, it's like drinking my piss once a day. It makes me feel good. <laughs> Excellent. Wonderful. Okay. Here we go. Gazing into the abyss. This is talking about uh, neo-reaction. Uh, Jordan Peterson and company. This is the BBC. Great, I'm glad it's the BBC. So go to HelloFresh.com. Come on. A bit longer and I would like it to. <laughs> I, but you know, I remember the cameraman. Okay, this is Helen Lewis. This is so BBC4. And uh, the series is called The New Gurus. The New Gurus, and this is episode five, Gazing into the Abyss. It's about Jordan Hall, Jordan Peterson, the near reaction. 
I thought it was a very high caliber interview. I, I would like it to have been longer and I would like it to have... <laughs> I, but do you know what? I remember the cameraman after we'd finished filming this 90 minutes going, well, I don't see who's going to watch all of that. And you're like, actually, as it turns out, 55 million people. In September 2018, I interviewed the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson for GQ. You you know, one thing answer for everything. You could let it's like me. It's part of the patriarchal institution. I don't think you're obeying a rule that says maybe treat people as if they have something worth hearing. So I'm not. It was some... So a lot of these journalists, like Helen Lewis, they want to show off for their journalistic peers to show how tough they are, but that's just lousy interview technique, right? A good interview follows a protocol, just like a plane takeoff and a plane landing, and sticking your opinions and reciting moral judgments while you're conducting an interview just shuts the other party down and puts them into a defensive mode so you don't get good quality content but a lot of journos like Helen Lewis they just want to preen and show off at the expense of getting a good quality interview a viral moment of my career watched by more than 50 million people on YouTube David Fuller was one of them I am a journalist and filmmaker, and I'm also the founder of the Rebel Wisdom Media Channel. David found Peterson such an inspirational guru that he quit his job to follow his teachings. But he doesn't feel like that anymore. Do you feel betrayed? Wow, he quit his job to to follow his teachings. Look, people come along and they meet a particular need in in our life. And so whether it's a father figure or a, a guru or a rabbi or a teacher or an inspiration, right? People can just come along and uh, they can you know, they can set off some you know a charge inside us, unleash energy, uh, inspire us to go in a, in a new direction. And uh, but in the final analysis, they're, they're a reflection of us. So when when I was like really into Dennis Prager, right, that was a reflection of me, right. And I always knew that from from the beginning that. Uh, you know, whoever I resonate with, that that's saying a lot about me. It, it's not just that oh, this uh, third party has all these amazing qualities. No, if I, you know, if I like a TV show, that reflects something about me. If I like a book, it reflects something about me. If I like a song, it reflects something about me. If I like a pundit, it reflects something about me. Because the, the pundit can never take you anywhere you don't want to go. My John Peter. There's a disappointment. I've really wrestled with a sense of what is my personal loyalty towards him versus my... owe him something. So this is where I found it so helpful to have a situationist perspective. So you can take on a hero and then you find out their feet of clay. But when you realize that uh, your heroes are only heroic in certain situations and in other situations they are the opposite of heroic, that's simply what it means to be human. Like in some circumstances, you would meet me and encounter me, and I will be polite, I'd be helpful, um, I might be, you know, fun or amusing, honest, forthright. And other situations, you'll encounter me. I'll be unpleasant, angry, suspicious, shut down. Right? It, it depends on the situation. Right? No one's brave in all circumstances. No one's honest in in all circumstances. Uh, no one's you know forthright in, in all circumstances like we're we're all profoundly affected by the situation that we're in yeah yes this is the story of a man who found his guru and how he lost that faith Helen Lewis. I'm Helen Lewis, a staff writer for The Atlantic, and I think we're living through a golden age of gurus. Everywhere you look online, people are giving and taking advice. Take ownership of your job, of your team. Oh, that's shocking. That's revolutionary. Oh, amazing. I mean, there's no sense of wider perspective. Anywhere you look offline, people are taking and giving advice. Right? The internet is a part of the real world. It's not separate from the real world. In the real world, people are constantly giving advice, people are constantly taking advice. Right? So the internet isn't different from the real world, it's not some revolution. Of your future and take ownership of your life. As our trust in institutions wavers, we're looking to... So notice that rising pitch, right? The, the power and the energy behind those words, that's how you capture attention. Right? You bring a lot of energy and you've got the rising pitch and you tell people you've got to take control of your life. 
Right, that's how you want to speak if you want to grab people's attention. Charismatic individuals to tell us how to live. It's got religious elements. To tell us how to live, no. We want people to guide us where we want to go. Right? We're not looking at people just to tell us how to live. She's got no clue the, the role of the, the guru. Right? Uh, I might turn to one friend for advice about buying a car, another friend for advice about where to you know, invest my 401k, uh, another friend for you know, advice about uh, you know, meeting, connecting with a particular woman, I might turn to someone else for advice on clothing, I turn to someone else for advice on sound quality, turn to someone else for, for advice on live streaming, turn to someone else for advice on podcasting, all right? We turn to people for advice in the direction we already want to go, right? We're not turning to people just to willy-nilly tell us how to live our lives. Cult-like elements, certainly, this idea that it's us against the world cult-like elements, us against the world. That's inherent in all in-group identity. There's just no sense of the wider the wider perspective, right? All in-group identities are like cults, right? You can't have a strong in-group identity without, you know, carrying on many culty particulars. This is a story about economics and technology and about our search for certainty in an uncertain world. Just as uh, people will say that the Protestant Reformation and the printing press went hand in hand, so too did this birth of the new internet culture really give rise to this new religious landscape. How are these gurus changing our lives and the world around us? And who holds them to account? For BBC Radio... You know who holds gurus to account? Reality. Reality holds me to account. It holds you to account, right? And the reality is, if you stop thinking about what your boss wants, you'll be out of a job. If you stop thinking about what your friends want, you'll be out of friends. If you stop thinking about what your spouse wants, you'll be out of a spouse. Right? You know, reality bites. Right? You stop taking other people into consideration, stop taking their needs into consideration, right? you'll lose them from your life. And so... Uh, it's not like gurus just running loose until BBC and Helen Lewis came along to hold them to account. You know who also holds gurus to account? Other gurus, right? We enjoy critiquing and challenging each other to the extent that, you know, I, I'm a guru. Like, we enjoy talking with friends. They're trying to restrict my mobile data limit. It's, it's oppression. The globalist elites are trying to shut me down. They think, oh... I reached my global data limit, so they cut it off and asked me if I want more. Bloody hell. Like when I use my Aussie Oppo phone and, and I need to turn it up a bit because there's a lot of noise around me, they go, hey, do you consent to have your you know phone raise the volume to unsafe levels? Yes, I consent. Bloody hell, the nanny state, mates. Year 4 on BBC Sounds, this is The New Gurus, a series about looking for enlightenment in the digital world. Episode 5, Gazing into the Abyss. Okay, people are usually looking for enlightenment in the digital world. They're looking to solve problems. Right? That's the, the easiest way to get an audience. You solve people's problems. You know, if they've got yellow teeth, if they're not wearing clothes that are you know, well-fitting uh, or flattering, uh, if people you know, have problems with their, their hearing or their sight or, you know, creating a, a delicious dinner or losing weight, all right? If you solve people's problems, you'll get an audience, all right? When, when I release a video that gets very few views, that's because that video is not solving anyone's problems, all right? Make a video that solves people's problems, show them how to get cheap airfares, you'll get a lot of views. The man David Fuller chose as his guru, Jordan Peterson, is the author of the best-selling self-help book, 12 Rules for Life. Okay, so Jordan Hall chose Jordan Peterson to be his guru because Jordan Peterson unleashed things in Jordan Hall that he wanted unleashed. Jordan Peterson took Jordan Hall on a journey where Jordan Hall wanted to go. It's not like Jordan Peterson kidnapped Jordan Hall and sent him in a direction completely antithetical to everything that uh, Jordan Hall wanted. Rule one is stand up straight with your shoulders back. And rule two is... That's... that's bad advice, alright? Make the problem, solve the problem, be a government guru. Alright? Stand up straight with the shoulders back. That, that's bad advice. 
you have all sorts of interfering muscular tension patterns, right? You may have one shoulder higher than the other, your head may jut forward in forward head posture. You have learned to get through life by tensing up, right? That's, you know, that's how you have navigated a lot of difficult, painful situations. And by tensing up to force your way through very difficult circumstances, you're then inculcated into yourself Know, unnecessary muscular tension and compression and, and kind of pulling down on your musculature patterns and just like trying to override that by standing up straight with the shoulders back that's not going to do it right? what you need to do is start subtracting all these layers of unnecessary tension and compression that you have accumulated as you found your way through life and this will be incredibly disconcerting because we tend to know ourselves by our tension patterns and we tend to take on the tension patterns of people we like and admire such as our parents so get thee to a good Alexander Technique teacher and begin the process of subtraction of unnecessary compression and tension patterns. Treat yourself like you're someone responsible for helping. And number three, which is very tightly associated with number two, make friends with those people who want the best for you. The same year I interviewed Peterson, he was anointed a member of a band of anti-woke warriors known as the Intellectual Dark Web. Here is one of its members, the conservative commentator Dave Rubin, describing the group on his podcast. A few months ago, one of my favorite people to sit across this table from, Eric Weinstein, came up with the phrase intellectual dark web to describe this eclectic mix of people from Sam Harris to Ben Shapiro to his brother Brett Weinstein to Jordan Peterson. What an incredibly pretentious title for just an incredibly pretentious group of people. And they're, they're later described in this podcast as producing scholarship. I, I'm not aware of uh, much scholarship being uh, produced by the intellectual dark web all of whom are figuring out ways to have the important and often dangerous conversations that are completely ignored by the mainstream. If you've read a story about wokeness or cancel culture lately, thank the intellectual dark web. So, critical race theory, it's everywhere. If you say this to a feminist, you're a sexist. They have redefined the term racism. It's all woke. It's all woke culture. They have millions of followers who are incredibly loyal, online armies rallying to their banners. Okay. They don't have millions of followers who are going in a direction they otherwise would not have gone through if uh, they didn't discover the intellectual dark web. Right? They have millions of people who basically agree with them and they fulfill you know, these people's needs for assurance. Right? They are very adept at giving their audience what they want to hear. They confirm their audience's prejudices and whenever they deviate from what their audience wants, guess what? The audience goes away. It's not like the audience has to hear you know, every single Jordan Peterson video, every, every single Eric Weinstein video. Right? As soon as Eric or Jordan say something that their audience doesn't want to hear, their audience, that part of the audience just goes away. So she portrays these gurus who just have millions of people on their beck and call, that, that these gurus like marionettes, and they can just pull the string and millions of people jump. But... Uh, Look, you're all individuals, right? You, know, you come in here with your own personality, with your own views, and to the extent that I have any effect on you, it's only because you want to go in a particular direction that I might be offering. Their fans cannot get enough of their content. This conversation is over seven hours. Their fans cannot get enough. That's bupkis, right? Their fans don't consume all their content. Their fans only consume the content that is amenable to them, to their predisposition, to taking them where they want to go, right? So she's just saying things that are just patently untrue, uh, bogus. You, you'd think she'd be a little more thoughtful and careful. Some folks, that's too long. For some, too short. For some, just right. The intellectual... Yeah, that's uh, Lex Friedman and his, what, yeah, seven-hour conversation was... Who was that with? But uh, I mean, talk about incredibly you know, shallow, vapid, banal. Like Lex Friedman, Joe Rogan, Jocko Willink. I mean, these are all uh, goop for men. I mean, these are all like really like low IQ productions. I mean, just just banal, silly, vapid perspectives. Darkman promised to break polite taboos around race and gender, declining birth rates, Islamism, and the decline of Western civilization. Their freewheeling, provocative, controversial discussions resonated with people who had grown up in stuffier, more formulaic media environments. People like David Fuller. I've been a journalist for about 20 years. 
So yeah, if you want to hear distant perspectives, now listen to generally thoughtful, genuinely thoughtful people like Paul Gottfried, or Jared Taylor, or, or Peter Brimlow, or Amy Wax, uh, Nathan Kofnis, Devin Sesedek, uh, J. Michael Bailey. I mean, there are a lot of genuine you know, distant intellectuals out there. You don't have to go for the junk food of the intellectual dark web. I made documentaries for Channel 4, BBC, but at the same time I was also doing a lot of personal growth work, a lot of spiritual work, I studied philosophy, so I was always deeply interested in kind of ideas, and always a little bit frustrated by what I consider to be sort of the narrowness of the conversation in the newsroom, and we never really asked the sort of deeper questions, and in particular... And you know why that is? Because the news essentially repackages what bureaucracies release, right? The news... Right, the professional news business is a business. Right, they sell advertising, and the the news section of the news business is that they secure information and decisions and reports released by various bureaucracies, whether it's a, a jury, whether it's you know the Department of Labor, which is releasing unemployment statistics, whether it's the presidential administration laying out their Know, legislative agenda, whether it's um, you know, Fortune 500 company or you know a neighborhood store, uh, right? These are all you know bureaucracies that you know release information to the public, and so uh, the news is simply telling you what various bureaucracies say, and you know maybe different bureaucracies have different opinions, like the Republican and Democratic Party, you know, often have very different opinions. And so they'll report what these you know, bureaucracies tell them. Right? It, it's not necessarily reality. Right? It's frequently completely divorced from reality. You'll often get more wisdom and truth about what's happening in the world from your friend, from a stranger in a park, you know, from a live streamer, from you know, a clerk at the county courthouse. Right? You'll often get you know, more real talk from, from your girlfriend, from... Uh, some stranger you talk to on a bus than you get on the NBC nightly news, which is just going to prevent to you, you know, the reports and decisions made by bureaucracies. Question of what goes in the hole left by religion. When David Fuller first heard about Jordan Peterson, the Canadian psychologist wasn't yet the full-blown culture warrior he would eventually become. David was enthralled by Peterson's online lectures hosted on YouTube. And I found the way that he knitted together the great psychological thinkers like Jung and Freud with the phenomenologists, together with the deep mythological, really compelling. And I feel like that work is some of the most profound stuff I've ever encountered or listened to. So when Jordan Peterson's situation changed, when he became a celebrity, it changed him. And so a lot of people who are good in a particular area, when they get a certain amount of fame, they then feel like, you know, oh, I have so much more wisdom to share, and they start sharing... Uh, opinions on all sorts of things about which they have no expertise. Very common trajectory. These figures of the imagination can reveal the structure of reality to you. And that's what happened with Jung, and that's what he described in the Red Book. I also... I've never gotten into Jordan Peterson. I don't have anything against him. I, I, some of the things he says are stupid. Some of the things he says are smart. Some of the things I, I don't know. But I've never sought out his, his perspective on anything. Now, you know, I can't help kind of getting bombarded with Jordan Peterson stuff but I've never been one who's looked to Jordan Peterson for wisdom has found you know particular value or benefit from Jordan had sympathy with a lot of his criticisms of identity politics like if you're one-eighth black what does that make you exactly are you black are you white are you oppressed are you... great question if you're one-eighth black and you're filling out the US census you are counted as black right if you're seven-eighths white one-eighth black the U.S. Census report counts you as 100% black. Right? If you are three quarters white and you're one quarter Filipino, the U.S. Census report counts you as one quarter as 100% Filipino. Right? So that's how the U.S. Census reports distort the, the demographics of the United States. Right? That the country is far whiter than U.S. Census Bureau's you know, information says because it's all distorted with a particular agenda of accentuating uh, the, the number and preferably the, the power of non-whites. Oppressor? So you encountered him as a speaker. So this is something that really could have only happened in the sort of post-YouTube era. Yes. When did you decide you wanted to interview him and why? 
I became hugely taken with his thought and I was borderline kind of obsessed. And then I thought, well, he's doing these Bible lectures in Canada and Toronto. So this says something about Jordan, John Paul, right? It's like we have, you know, empty spaces inside, in our soul, in our life. We feel like something needs to change and someone comes along and catalyzes us. In, in you know moving off in, in a new direction, so we may you know become obsessed for for a while, and uh, we we don't usually stay obsessed with you know gurus for for that long. All right, we we may suck them dry for everything they have to offer us, and then we move on. People go halfway across the world for a sports game. Like this is for me, like going and watching an, an amazing sports this game. This is my going, Super Bowl interviewing Jordan Peterson. At that at that point, yeah. And what did you think of him then? What was he like when you met him? Warm, welcoming. I got the sense of a sort of classic eccentric professor. What, what is the masculinity we can aspire to? Well, it's responsibility fundamentally, to put it symbolically. So it's very easy to be warm and welcoming when you feel how much someone loves, respects, and venerates you. Right? Someone comes to you, you know, filled with warmth and gratitude and you know, respect, and tells you how you've changed their life. You know, obviously, you're going to be warm and welcoming. In response, right? You want to come on the chat and tell me, you know, how much I've changed your life? I mean, then I'm going to be warm and welcoming. That's that's no surprise. So that uh, Dennis Prager was warm and welcoming to me, or Jordan Peterson was warm and welcoming to this bloke. All right, that's only to be expected. Most people are going to be warm and welcoming, you know, when you give them a tongue bath. Is that your responsibility is to incarnate the spirit of the logos? That's your role in life. I look back at the interview that I did with him in 2017, and I see a person who was much more relaxed than I think he became. So I was just laughing there when Jordan talked about, "Oh, your role in life is to incarnate the logos." I have no idea what that means, but I just had this involuntary you know, laughing reaction. So, and I laugh. You'll notice my my shoulders kind of compressed and my head went forward. So every emotion is only possible with a particular alignment of the body. So if I maintain you know, complete serenity in my face, my musculature, if there wasn't any compression or tension in, in my shoulders and, and in my back, I wouldn't have been able to laugh. Uh, you can only feel depressed if you literally pull down and depress on yourself. So every single emotion, whether it's joy, anger, resentment, uh, laughter, it's only possible with a particular alignment of your body. And so you'll see when I live stream or you'll see anyone, when they go through different emotions, you'll see the alignment of their body change as they experience different emotions. So so laughter, there'll have to be some compression and release. There's some distortion and pulling down and compressing of the musculature and then a release of that as they laugh. Afterwards. You met him then essentially pre-guru. You met him when he was still a person rather than a phenomenon. Yes, he had a certain profile at that point, but he... Guess what? Even phenomenons are still persons, right? So you become a star or a phenomenon, right? There's just part of you that's a phenomenon, yeah, and then a large part of you is still a person. We, we never get to graduate from being a human being. We never get to graduate from being a flawed, vulnerable human being who may be quite adapted to certain situations and quite maladapted to other situations. Right? No matter how big our star, no matter if we're royalty, no matter if we're Hollywood actors or live streamers with thousands of viewers, we never get to graduate from being flawed, vulnerable human beings who are impressive in some situations and depressive in other situations. wasn't the stratospheric figure that he then became after he had this interview with Kathy Newman on Channel 4 News, where I'd been working for about 10 years. As David says, Peterson became a superstar thanks to a combative interview he did with Kathy Newman. It took them. Okay, it wasn't the Kathy Newman interview that made Jordan Peterson a superstar. Uh, Jordan Peterson performed extremely well in a lot of interviews and in many public presentations. Right? Jordan Peterson made Jordan Peterson a, a star. It wasn't uh, Kathy Newman. Jordan Peterson always possessed tremendous charisma. People always were oriented towards him. And charisma simply means that you, you give people energy. They feel better when they interact with you. And so they seek more and deeper and more intense interactions 
because they find that they get energized from, from the, uh, interacting with you. So that's charisma. You know, a charismatic person goes through the day you know, adding energy to the people that he interacts with and from those interactions he gets energy so that he then has more energy to, to share with other people. So that's a successful life. You go through the day and you keep adding up your store of energy because you get on the same you know, the same situation with others, right? You, you get, you know, tuned into other people. You create a shared reality with someone else, even if it's just saying good morning. But there's like, if there's something genuine in your good morning, other people will feel that. You'll have an experience where you're on the same page with someone else. And then both of you will get energy from that. And out of that energy will come a bond between you. And out of that bond will become will come an ethic, right? You can never form bonds with anyone without a morality and ethical system that then develops from. So the charismatic person goes through the day, goes through life, you know, getting on the same page, tuning in to other people, and then creating a shared experience with them. And because they, they're capable of tuning into you and, and sharing a, a real experience with you, you know, sharing, understanding your concerns, you know, sharing your, your, your fears and your hopes and your dreams, you know, acknowledging your, your humanity, right? They tune into you, they get on the same page with you, create a shared experience with you, and that energizes both of you. And so the charismatic person is skilled at tuning in to his audience, tuning into people as individuals or tuning into people as groups, understanding where they're at, you know, talking to them in a way that connects and then out of that connection always comes energy a bond and an ethical system place on an old school broadcaster but it went viral on youtube is, do you believe in equal pay well i made the argument there it's like it depends so you don't believe it. in equal pay <laughs> no i'm not saying that at all because a lot of people listening to you will just say i mean are we going back to the that's because they're actually not listening i thought it showed up so many of the kind of the fault lines of the conversation in a really fascinating way Particularly this clash between the alternatives. So this Kathy Newman, this, this you know, harpy, interrupting, you know, terrible interviewer, she doesn't regret anything about that interview, right? She's just you know, still so proud of it, even though she was made to look like a fool. Except in the mainstream. I found that quite difficult. It's like kind of your parents fighting. David's loyalties were torn between the old and the new, the mainstream and the alternative. He chose the new, setting up a YouTube channel called Rebel Wisdom to showcase the emerging superstars of the intellectual dark web. Like, oh, wow, these people now have this incredible reach to influence the conversation. Now, imagine how shallow Jordan Hall would have to be to think that the intellectual dark web was something significant that, you know, he wanted to showcase. I mean, imagine just like the, the very shallow, low level of understanding he had of reality to think that there's something special about you know, Eric Weinstein and uh, who, who was his brother at Evergreen College, Brett Weinstein, and uh, Ben Shapiro, uh, Sam Harris, uh, Joe Rogan, uh, John Pisa. I mean, imagine like his shallow understanding of life, you know, his lack of wisdom and depth that he thinks that you know these are important thinkers. I was sympathetic to the intellectual dark web, certainly at the beginning. I faced a few cancellation attempts myself, so I can tell you, it does feel like there are professional and personal consequences for dissenting from the fashionable consensus on hot topics. This is the bioethicist Alice Drager. There was this cultural feeling, certainly in the United States, that people had been forbidden, supposedly, from saying certain things because the left had become so policing. And the left had become so policing and is so policing. Ironically, for a group whose members often claim that liberal institutions were outdated and irrelevant. Okay, so when people say they're forbidden from saying things, they mean that they don't want to face the consequences would come if they say certain things. Yeah. That's what's really going on. In 2018, the intellectual dark web was anointed as the hot new thing by the impeccably liberal New York Times. Alice, who had written a provocative book about the hounding of controversial academics, took their call. So you could have been part of the intellectual dark web. What happened? I was approached by Barry Weiss of the New York Times, and she identified me in her thinking as being sort of part of this intellectual dark web group. And every time she mentioned it to me, I giggled. <laughs> I thought it was so silly. The other thing was that the people she would name, I had no idea who they were. I mean, I had 
vaguely heard of Jordan Peterson, but literally the rest of them, I had to look them up. So how could I be part of a web that I didn't know any of the people in it? <laughs> the newspaper sent a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer who wanted to shoot Alice behind her house in dim light, looking moody. So we went out to this place behind my fire department where there's... That's the thing about the news, is it's so hyped beyond reality. It's so packaged to, you know, get attention, right, to attract eyeballs. That's, that's the business of news, attracting eyeballs. How do you get eyeballs, right? You hype, you exaggerate, you manipulate, right? You use all sorts of artificial and theatrical means to capture attention. Uh, news is frequently not very good for you because it, it distorts reality to try to capture your attention so that they can then sell you advertising. It's an open field and reeds and some deer wandering around. He was like waiting for the perfect light to shoot me. And the more I stood there, the more I thought, this is just stupid, right? Because like, I don't disrespect this person or Barry, right? But like, what is going on here? So I kind of let Barry know, like, I don't think I make any sense for this article. Alice wasn't trying to be an outsider. And she also didn't understand how the other members of the IDW were supposed to be outsiders when thousands of people were coming to their talks. And furthermore, I think what they all seem to have in common is trying to piss off progressives. And I don't think that's a worthy intellectual goal. Any more than pissing off conservatives is a worthy intellectual goal. That's not intellectualism. So Alice... No, what they all had in common was, you know, a willingness to say anything almost to garner attention and to advance themselves. Right? So they were all into you know, their career success, but they were never going to jeopardize their career success by ever actually saying any you know, painful truths that uh, might, might make their lives you know, less comfortable. Uh, this is not a crew you know, in the intellectual dark web who you know, has much to offer you know, a, a thinking person. Pulled out of the future. The idea of being targets of persecution, modern day Galileos, was key to the appeal of the intellectual dark web. That's a very potent message, isn't it, for a guru, is to say, people don't want you to hear this, but I... I mean, these guys that think they're modern-day Galileas, it's absolutely absurd. That is completely disconnected from reality. It's not an iota of truth. And we're talking, you know, hacks here. You don't really add anything. I've got to tell you anyway. Oh, it's always been. It's as ancient to text as you can find. The gurus will always say... I have the secret wisdom they don't want you to hear. <laughs> it makes it extra attractive. But if Alice didn't want it... Yeah, that's what marketers do, right? That's what you know, hype, hype artists do, right? It's uh, people who don't mind being dishonest to try to advance their interests. Right? Don't mind trying to lie, lie and manipulate you to advance their own fame. Anything to do with the intellectual dark web? Plenty of people were happy to take her spot. I used to say that I was IDW adjacent, I guess. This is James Lindsay. My typical reach right now is somewhere in the one to five million people range. James became famous for his part in the so And how do you build up, you know, this, this big following? You tell people what they want to hear. Like, you need to be predictable. So I remember I got a big bump after the 2020 election when I just made a tweet outlining what I thought Donald Trump's strategy would be to try to fight the election results. And so, you know, I suddenly got a flood of like 100 new subscribers. But when I didn't continue along that predictable line, when I said that there's no evidence of voter fraud, then, you know, I, I lost that audience, right? You get an audience by just servicing them, just like a prostitute services an audience. You tell them what they, they want to hear. You give them something predictable. Called grievance studies hoax. Alongside two co-conspirators, he submitted spoof papers to academic journals. Subjects included a conceptual penis and dogs raping each other in parks. I've just written my email. We have our first win. The dog work paper has been accepted. We have accepted paper in the number one feminist geography channel. The trio wanted to expose, as they saw it, the politically correct excesses of academia. So some of these journals will accept anything, uh, particularly if you pay for the publication. So these weren't the most prestigious journals that accepted these nonsense contributions. The intellectual dark web kind of as a movement was sort of pricking that bubble and trying to pop it. And my suspicion of academia now is total. I actually think I trust like the van down by the river that says free candy. I would like probably send my kids into the free candy van before I would trust academia at all. I first interviewed James in 20. Okay, so if, if you send, you know, a publication to 
you know, academic journal that uh, you know publishes everything. You know, if you pay them, uh, it's not exactly an indictment against academia. Uh, academia is incredibly diverse. Uh, there's some academics who are doing good work. There are some plumbers who are doing good work. There are some psychiatrists and psychotherapists, uh, landscapers who are doing good work. Now most are just mediocre. And then a significant number are bad at their jobs. 2018, and he'd recently finished the grievance studies hoax. And he struck me as interesting and eloquent, as well as competitive, confident, maybe a little self-aggrandizing. I didn't think about it much for a couple of years until I heard that he'd been in a high... Okay, so anyone who's going to broadcast their opinions like I do or James Lindsay does or Helen Lewis does, it's going to be self-aggrandizing. Right? So narcissism is usually not a condition, it's a situational thing. All right, And so if I'm going to sit here in a park on a Friday afternoon, it's about uh, 5.30 p.m. here, Friday afternoon, January 13th in uh, Sydney, Australia, uh, yeah, there's, there's going to be an overly inflated sense of self you know, who's just you know, so sure that I have something important to say. So you know, I'm going to sit here at a park bench you know, and talk to a little phone. Like my, my friends say, how do you talk to a little phone for as long as you do? Well, it's because I think I have important things to say. I'm fired up about saying them. I, I think that uh, there are other th things that I've heard on a podcast that uh, are silly and stupid and that I, I want to point them out. All right. I, I'm so charged up. And when you're that charged up to share your opinions, yeah, you're obviously going to have some self-aggrandizement tendencies. A profile fight on Twitter with the Auschwitz Museum. I actually joined Twitter in like 2012. I was abnormally patient. Okay, there's nothing about being a museum which uh, gives you greater wisdom than being a plumbing company. Right? There's nothing about being in the Holocaust business that automatically gives you greater wisdom or greater righteousness, you know, greater clarity, greater prestige than if you're a plumber, right? Surviving a Holocaust does not make you wiser or kinder or a finer human being. Uh, making your living from selling things with regard to a genocide does not make you automatically a wiser, kinder, you know, greater, finer uh, institution or, or human being. So there's no reason that uh, fighting with you know the Auschwitz uh, shop you know, is any more or less uh, troublesome than you know fighting with a, with a plumber or a landscape architect. Right? Some some museum or shop you know with regard to some genocide it's not automatically imbued with wisdom and, and grace and, and profundity and clarity and goodness and righteousness right it's it's another organization you know trying to make a buck and trying to hype its influence and trying to change other people's opinions and trying to attach itself to you know a sacred historical event which now they'll probably want regarded something as occurring outside of history. This is something in, in sacred history. This is like a transcendent event, not in ordinary history. And they have the, the magic key to this, you know, sacred, holy thing. Normally willing to engage in dialogue. And what I was doing was destroying myself mentally and emotionally with the level of frustration, the trolling, etc. And so self-defensively, just being dismissive and rude is a strategy. It was, oh, well, let's have a dialogue. I would love to have a debate. No, screw that. Your mom sucks. You know, just go right to the throat and just, because it's Twitter. Okay, but that ends up with you arguing with the Auschwitz Museum. Well, I didn't quite argue. So she keeps going back as a, the Auschwitz Museum is a repository of wisdom, goodness, kindness, truth, clarity, but there's nothing inherent in being a museum related to some genocide that automatically bestows any of these qualities, right? It's just, she's talking as though she's taking for granted that because this is a museum attached to a particular, you know, sacred, holy, outside of history event through the prism through which everything else must be viewed, right? So therefore, you can't argue with them. Right? She's saying, anytime you say something sacred, you're saying you can't argue with it. So she's saying that this particular genocide, this is sacred. Right? And uh, you'll notice people never want to argue or even discuss or you know, entertain any challenge to anything they hold sacred. And so 
many secular people, right, they, they don't hold you know, anything religious sacred, but they'll hold, you know, a particular genocide sacred. You know, they'll hold a particular, you know, egalitarian perspective. Oh, you know, all people must have identically similar gifts. Any differences in life outcomes between groups, that, that must be related, you know, entirely to social structural forces. Right? That, and that is a belief that takes on all the qualities of a sacred belief for them. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.